Good to see you, Westside. Welcome here. Welcome here. It's good to see you. Good to have you here. I, along with Chad, want to welcome you here. Met some people here for the first time today, others that have come in from out of town visiting friends or family. Really good having you here. And as always, it's always good to have all the German fans here. Um, really good to have you here today. Argentinian fans. A lot of churches in this city. A lot of churches in this city. How to build ministry. How to build ministry. I know. Uh, no, in all honesty and seriousness, it's really good to have you here. My name is Norm, one of the pastors here. Next week, we are beginning a series called Only One, where we're going to look at all of the four one-chapter books in the New Testament. That begins next week. Today, on this sort of one-off Sunday, I want to take you to Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible and book or app form, find the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. We are in the seventh chapter, and we're looking at verses 11 to 17. So find that, and as you do, let me pray for our time today. Father, on days like this especially, it's easy to be full of thanks and praise. What a beautiful place we live in. What a beautiful city. What a beautiful part of the city. Thank you for this building. Thank you for allowing us to gather here together. And we, we do gather with anticipation and expectation. Anticipation and expectation because we believe you, God, not only are real, but you're relational. And not only relational, but constantly speak into our lives in various ways, but no greater way than the word that you've given us. And so as we open up your word today, we come with great anticipation and expectation that we are going to hear from you today. But we also recognize that we have an enemy. We also battle against our own distractions of the flesh. Good things too, things that we're going to do afterwards today, but also the hard. And so I pray against that. I pray against those things that are either good or hard that possibly could distract us from hearing from you today. I pray that by your spirit you would give us great ears and hearts and eyes to see and hear and receive the things that we need to. As I pray every week, and I will continue to pray every week, use me in spite of me, help all of us as listeners, and I pray that this would be a great day of ministry. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Even if you're newer to the Bible or you're not all that familiar with it, one of the things you may know about it, specifically about the teachings of Jesus found in it, is that he often taught in what are called parables. Now, what is a parable? Simply, and this may help you a little bit, parables are earthly stories that have packed in them heavenly truth. Heavenly truth given by Jesus by the use of story or metaphor or simile or illustration. In fact, many of the parables that Jesus gives begins with the question, what shall the kingdom of heaven be compared to? And then he will begin the parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed, or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went on a journey, or the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field. Those are the spoken parables of Jesus. But in addition to the spoken parables of Jesus is his life where in fact very real life events take place but pack in them heavenly truth as well. I call these, and I borrow the term and I've talked about it many times over the years here, I call them living parables. These are real life events but like spoken parables pack 
much truth in them, heavenly truth in them. It goes beyond just the simple event itself. And we have a call, like in a spoken parable, where Jesus gives parables so that we would give ourselves to the task of trying to figure out what, what does Jesus have for us in this. There's something bigger, than going, bigger going on than just simply the story. Same with a, a living parable, where we need to look at certain events and, and by God's help, discern and discover what heavenly truth we need to see in it and from them. I say that by taking it to Luke chapter 7, like I said, where we find one of these living parables found in verses 11 to 17. Let me read it for you. It's one of my all-time favorite living parables in all of the Gospels. It begins this way. Soon afterward, he went, that's Jesus, to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. Now, if you were to approach this event and just look at it as a standalone event, it stands in itself. And by itself, it's a great event in other words. Jesus raises a man from the dead. That's fantastic. What a great record of the history, or at least part of the history of Jesus. However, if you look and read this particular event as something more than that, as a living parable in other words, it goes to a whole other level of greatness. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because in this living parable, we see revealed to us the wonder and the greatness and the beauty of the ministry of Jesus. Now, let me explain this and set the stage. Put your eyes back if you have Bibles open. Put them back in verse 11 and verse 12 because it sets the stage for us. And Luke, the author of this particular gospel, is laying down sort of the, the lead up to what's to take place next. Jesus... And a great crowd with him, you see that reference there in the first couple of verses, along with his disciples have journeyed from a, a town called Capernaum, and they've made a 40-kilometer trek to this town called Nain. And we see in these two verses that Jesus and this great crowd, along with his disciples, is about to enter Nain by the city gate. But before they can, they butt up against another crowd. It's referred to as a considerable crowd. And they can't, even, they can't even walk into this city gate. They butt into one another, leading this considerable, uh, considerable crowd out of this town of Nain is a widow, a widow who is about to bury her recently lost son. So we have two crowds, one led by Jesus going into the city. We have a crowd coming out of the city, this one going to a funeral led by a widow like I said, who had recently lost her son and is about to bury him. How recently? 
Well, we aren't told exactly how recently, but history does suggest that burials happen within about 24 hours of the death because of lack of refrigeration and so on and so forth. So fairly recently, perhaps within the last day, as was the custom of that day, the people of Nain would have stopped doing what they were doing and they would have joined the funeral procession as it made its way through the town. The mother, like I said, would have been in front, followed by those carrying a beer, which is an open coffin, carrying this open coffin, which contained the body of her son. Behind them would have been those who were mourning the boy's death. They would have been wailing. They would have been crying. They would have been repeating chants that were very common of the day, in the day, in connection with mourning. Some would have been friends, some perhaps relatives. Others may have been actually paid to come and mourn the death of the boy. That's the history of of funerals and burials at this particular time. Those bringing up the rear would have been the townspeople who followed out of respect for the dead. That's the setting. That's what we see in these first two verses. But as we gaze at this living parable, I think we just need to step back and appreciate what's taking place and sort of picture it in our own minds. Jesus, again, leading a great crowd in, a grieving mom leading a funeral procession out. Don't miss that setting. Where they log jam at the city gate. But here's the first thing that I would like to suggest to you this morning as we embark into this living parable and that it's a divine log jam that's taking place here where all heaven is about to, to break loose. And it's at this point in this living parable where the first of four beautiful aspects of the ministry of Jesus is revealed. If you like taking notes, I want to highlight four things revealed about the beautiful ministry of Jesus that we see in this living parable. Here's the first. Jesus came to enter our desperation. Jesus came to enter our desperation See, along with imagining this scene, you have to take some time to appreciate the despair of this woman. At the time of this writing, there was no one more vulnerable than a widow. At a time when opportunities for women were limited at best, with much dependence then resting on their husband and then their sons thereafter to care for them, this woman had lost both with no children besides. You can, almost, you can almost feel her pain. You can almost feel her anguish as she exits this town, can't you? I mean, put yourself in this particular spot. And that's the point of verses 11 and 12. That's, that Luke's, that's Luke's purpose. I mean, if you find verse 11 and 12 as entirely depressing and despondent, then you're getting it because they're meant to be. Despondency and depression and desperation are what Luke, as guided by the Holy Spirit, wants us to be flooded with at this stage. I mean, just again, notice before we move on from them, the painstaking details that Luke gives us. He doesn't just simply say a son had died. He highlights that it's the only son of a widow who has died. We're to taste that. We're to experience and feel this. We're to put ourselves into it Husband is dead, only son is dead, joy is gone, 
hopes and dreams snatched away. In other words, this woman wasn't simply leading a funeral procession. She was journeying toward a life of destitution and despair. Luke wants us to grasp this. But why? For it's at her most desperate that Jesus enters her life. It's at her most distraught that Jesus hijacks a funeral procession. Isn't that great? I mean, wouldn't you love to do that? Like just a big line of cars going down the street, lights are on, hearse. You just hijacked that bad boy. Stop taking this one over. I mean, that's what's taking place here. Jesus coming at her most desperate time. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have taken this in? That's why I find it interesting that from the so-called neo-atheists of today, that one of the things they criticize about those who believe in God is that God is for the weak and the frail and the desperate. My response, you're exactly right. And who amongst us isn't? Or who amongst us won't be at one stage in their life? See, that idea is not an argument against, it's an argument for the existence of God. It's really an argument playing off our pride and commitment to self-dependence and reliance. Because we live in a time where we go, I don't want to depend on anybody, man. We raise our kids like that. Be self-reliant. No, don't, ever. We don't want to be. We don't want to be self-reliant because all of us at some stage, maybe not right now where you're at, maybe everything's hunky-dory, man, but at some stage and at some place, we will be in desperate times and thank God that he is more than willing to enter them. That's the first thing that we see here in Jesus about the beautiful aspect of his ministry revealed in this living parable. A second beautiful aspect of the ministry of Jesus revealed here is that Jesus didn't only come to enter our desperation, but Jesus enters it with compassion. Take a look at verse 13, short verse. I'll read it for you one more time. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Compassion, by the way, sweet word, really sweet word. It has the idea of pity and, and mercy in it. It really conveys the image that Jesus' heart went out to her. This word compassion seems to be very, very important to Jesus himself, not in just simply living it out and manifesting it and evidencing it in those spoken parables that I referred to earlier, he, he refers to compassion much. For example, in the parable of, of the prodigal son, or excuse me, the uh, Good Samaritan, in Luke chapter 10, he says this, as he, that's the Good Samaritan, journeyed, he came to where the beaten man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. In that prodigal son parable, a couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 15, we read this about the father in that parable, and the son arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. Compassion is talked much about in the ministry, teaching ministry of Jesus. Paul talks about it as well as something that we need to clothe ourselves with. In Colossians 3 verse 12, he instructs us this way. Put on then, clothe yourselves, in other words, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
with compassionate hearts, and kindness and humility, meekness and patience. This is to be something that is to characterize our lives as well as we see and we come across people who live in desperate times and de desperate situations, whatever that desperate state looks like. It's also a word, compassion, that is used to characterize God himself in places like Psalm 145 where we read, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That'd be a good song, by the way. It already is. That's my point. God is compassionate. We're to be compassionate. The, the father of the prodigal was compassionate. The good Samaritan was compassionate. It would make sense then in this living parable that Jesus would feel compassion towards this woman. For Jesus is nothing, nothing less than God in flesh. As Jesus himself said, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. Look at me. Westside, let me ask you a question. Do you know, do you believe that when God sees your desperation, whether it's a desperation that's been thrust upon you like this woman's was, or a desperation of your own making, for we as sheep have a great tendency to make a mess of our lives, that when God gazes and sees your desperation, he gazes and sees with compassion? You believe that? Do you know that? We, we see that here. He, he, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. See, God never forgets that we are made of dust. We forget much. We think we're all that. But praise God that he never forgets. And he looks he looks at us with sympathy and compassion. His heart goes out to us. And we see this in this beautiful living parable. Before moving on from it to the next part of the, the text, can I just take a slight detour with you? Um, as I thought about this, and one of the things I think necessary when you study the Bible and you come to events like this, you just need to step back and kind of place yourself in it and gaze at it from 30,000 feet and put yourself into the place of the crowd or the person or what have you. But one of the things that I thought of when I was walking through this text is at this particular time in the life and ministry of Jesus, there was a really good chance that his own mom was a widow. We don't know what happened to Joe, good guy, more than likely passed. Don't hear a lot from him. Jesus' own mom was a widow who was about to lose a son too. And I wonder if just for a moment, that when Jesus saw this woman, his heart went to his own mom. I wonder. Because Jesus was 100% divine, but he was also the perfect person. 100% human in addition to his 100%ness of divine. I have to think that just for a moment, as he looked at this woman, his heart went to his own mom. 
And so we see here upon seeing this woman that Jesus says to her, and you can note it in verse 13 at the very end, he says, don't cry. I don't want to be irreverent. But in context, this is a really stupid thing to say. No, it's more than that. It's, it's callous. It's heartless. Saying to the bereaving at a funeral, especially to a widow who had just lost her only son, don't cry. Try that sometime. It's callous. It's heartless. It's foolish. If it wasn't for verses 14 and 15. Take a look at verses 14 and 15, verses that reveal a third beautiful aspect of the ministry of Jesus, and that is Jesus didn't only come to enter our desperation and with compassion, but Jesus came to enter our death too. Take a look at these beautiful verses with me. Then he came up and he touched the bier and the bearers stood still and he said, young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. You could almost make this point a continuation of the first, for we are no more desperate than when we stand in the shadow of death. This is a desperate state. No, this is the most desperate state. You probably picked it up as I read the two verses, but the beauty of this living parable here is that it reveals that Jesus doesn't only just enter our death, he touches and he touches and stops it too. See, can I tell you something about our Jesus? Death doesn't simply march arrogantly in front of him without him stepping in. See, in verse 14, look at verse 14 with me. It's really important. We read that Jesus came up to the bier. It's an open coffin. And he touches it. And immediately what happens? What happens? The bearers, people holding up the bier, stop immediately. Why? Well, because Jesus had just broken the law. It was against their law to touch the coffin or come in proximity to that with the dead. It was against the law. In addition to it being against the law, we read this in Numbers 19, verse 11, that whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. So Jesus had broken the law, and now he is designated as unclean. Okay, let's figure this one out. What do we do with this? Because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. What do we do with this? Well, the simple and good answer, and an answer I agree with, is that there is a higher law. There's a higher thing going on here. There's a law of love and mercy. We see that in the ministry of Jesus in, in statements like, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And there are good things that you can do on the Sabbath, even though it can be designated as work. There's a higher way. We see it in his rebuke to the Pharisees of the time in a reference that I have spoken to quite a bit where the Pharisees are tithers of their spices and Jesus says, look, you've forgotten a higher way, love and mercy and grace and truth. Don't neglect the former. 
right? Don't neglect that. Don't neglect your commitment to giving back what you have received, but there's a higher way. There's something you're forgetting. So that may be a really good answer to this and one I agree with, but I also believe that there's something much bigger going on here. That in this living parable, we have played out for us what Jesus ultimately came to do. He came to stop the greatest of enemies, the enemy of death, and stop it as he does here, in the context of the whole counsel of God. How does he stop it here? By touching it and becoming unclean so that we would no longer have to be. Jesus stopped death by becoming death. He became sin, taking our sin's penalty so we could become the righteousness of God, his death, our life. But not only does Jesus stop here and touch death, he speaks in it too. He speaks into it. Jesus said to the dead son, I say to you, arise. In a way similar to what he did with Lazarus when calling him out of the grave, Jesus calls this young man out, but before he entered his. And in response and taking away all doubt, the boy snaps up and he starts speaking. Don't you wonder what he said? Why the long faces? Right? Who's the guy with the beard? I mean... Don't you kind of wonder, what's everybody doing here? What's happening? He does one. I don't know. Well, ask him one day, perhaps. I don't know. But I love this. But more important, even than wondering what he said, it's important to know here at this stage in this living parable that Jesus' authority and ability to speak into death rested on him becoming death and defeating it thereafter. In our seven-year study of the book of Romans, this is what we read in Romans 14. You thought we were done with that bad boy, right? Welcome back, Romans. Romans 14, verse 9. Paul writes of Jesus, For to this end Christ died and lived again. Why? That he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why can Jesus call the dead out of the grave? Because he's the Lord of it. Because he conquered it. He's the Lord of the living and the dead. That's why he can say to Lazarus, come on out. That's why he can say to you, young man, arise. To say to a little girl in the same gospel, arise. He is the Lord of the living and the dead. Jesus is the Lord of both. That's why Paul declares this great victory in 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Why? Because he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His death, taking away the penalty of sin, and his resurrection, taking away the power of it. He became sin so that we we would become the righteousness of God. All of these at play here, entering death, touching death, stopping death, speaking into death, and conquering death by becoming death. That's our Jesus. It's wondrous. 
Now, before moving on from this stage in this living parable, and as I begin, sort of begin wrapping up, I'm a slow wrapper-upper, so don't think that I'm about done. Don't get excited yet. But as I begin to wrap up, we'd be amiss if we didn't recognize that there are two deaths being, de- being depicted in this living parable. What are the two deaths? Well, the physical, the physical death of a son, certainly, but the spiritual death of the mother and the crowd with her. A dead man lying and a dead mother walking. But what we have in this living parable is that Jesus enters both. See, it goes without saying physical death is horrible. It goes without saying. We know that. To, to some degree, like most of you, I've been affected by it. As a pastor, I've been closely involved with it over the years. I've visited many hospitals, I've prayed with many sick, and I've buried many others. And across the gamut, from stillborn to the aged, from non-believing individuals to lifelong saints, from family members to strangers, from those having taken their lives to those who had it taken from them, from those who made a mark to those who never had a chance to, and from those left, who left little behind to those whose kids cried while a parent was driven to the grave. I've done those funerals. Physical death is sobering and it's horrible. But there is something worse than even it And that's the person who has lived yet never had their soul healed and raised. See, the importance of this, and if you think I'm absolutely a clown saying something like that, I mean, just note a couple of things in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus affirms this in his own ministry. He he affirms it in places like this in John chapter 11 where he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. It's an interesting statement stated to a person who's already alive physically. Even though they may die physically. And whoever lives by believing in me, and if you take one statement home with you, please take that one. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, there is a Big difference between living forever and eternal life. Big difference. This is why Jesus declared again to the living, I came that you may have life and have it to the full. See, it's why he did things like with the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, a paralytic brought before him. I've, one of my favorite events, again, it's living parable in the life of Jesus. Everybody knows what Jesus is, is to do there. All of the guys have brought their buddy there. Everybody's standing around. And what is the first thing Jesus says? Son, your sins are forgiven. Everybody's like, what the? That's not his issue. His issue, he can't walk. No, his issue is that he wasn't walking spiritually. Way bigger issue. Way bigger issue. See, although and no doubt raising a dead man is a wonder, we need to remember in this living parable is that this man's raising is to be seen as a 
sign of a greater resurrection, a resurrection of spiritual death to spiritual life. Longing for that day, again, going back to Romans, this time Romans chapter 8, longing for the day when the physical side of our, of our lives and who we are meet this great interchange with the spiritual side where we, where we finally receive and realize full redemption, where the groanings cease. That's what we long for. Bring together the physical raising, meeting Jesus with the spiritual raising, and then we are perfect. We long for that day. And we see here a dead man raising and most likely looking right into the face of Jesus. That's what's going on in this living parable. But two types of death aren't the only thing contrasted in this living parable, however. See, in this living parable, we also see a couple other things contrasted. I want you to note them. Really important, really beautiful, love them. What else, what else do we see here in, these, in, the, in this living parable, the contrasting elements of it? Well, we see two crowds, one leaving the city and walking to the grave. The other walking in the city with the author of life. We see two sons. We see a dead son and we see the son of man. We see two sufferers a suffering mother, and Jesus who bore our suffering. We see two enemies, death and Jesus who conquered it. And when Jesus conquers death here as a foretaste of his ultimate conquering soon to come, notice what exchange takes place. So we have things that are contrasting with one another, but notice the exchange. Death is exchanged with life. But notice also that desperation is exchanged with abundance. See, think about it. Think about it. This widow arose that morning if she slept at all, believing that day she would bury her only son. And when she went to bed that night, she didn't only receive her son back, she received the son of man too. And could I also suggest to you she received her groom back too? What a beautiful day. Desperation exchanged with abundance as Jesus hijacked this funeral. There's one other exchange that we see in this great living parable, and that is mourning exchanged with worship. Mourning exchange with worship, which leads to my final point about what this living parable re reveals about the beautiful ministry of Jesus, and that is Jesus came to enter our desperation and our mourning and our fear and brings forth worship. Take a look at verses 16 and 17. It says, their fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about Jesus spread through the whole country of Judea and all the surrounding country. Fear is the natural reaction of men and women when they are confronted with an unnatural power. That's what fear is. At least in the context of this. 
Glorification, however, is a natural outcome when men and women recognize that the source of that power is a compassionate God. You know, as I close, I found it interesting that the name of this town, Nain, you know what it means? You probably see it maybe in the margins, you cheaters. You can't look, don't look. The, 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 town, means na, na, the town Nain means beauty. That's what it means. When that day started in the town of Nain, however, nothing beautiful was going on until Jesus arrived. And in that moment when he arrives, he shows up and he reveals four beautiful aspects of his ministry. That he came to enter our desperation and to enter our desperation with compassion and to enter our death too. To touch it, to stop it, to speak into it and finally to become it so that we wouldn't have to. And finally, Jesus came to enter our desperation and mourning and fear and exchange it with worship. This is what happens when God visits his people. So I ask you some questions as I close. Which crowd are you? You coming in or are you going out? on a journey toward death or walking with the author of life? Which crowd are you? Who, who represents you in this? Are you, are you suffering or do you know the sufferer, the one who came to take your place? Are you the dead son? Are you the dead son, excuse me, or do you know the ultimate of sons? He wants you to know him. I end by re, uh, reading from a text that's not on the screen, and I purposely didn't put it on the screen because I just want you to listen to it. And as I read it, I want you to pick up the images of it that remind us of this living parable that we just walked through. It's a text found in Revelation chapter 21. It's the first four verses. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. By the way, sea, anytime you come up with sea in, in the book of Revelation, it, it's, it's speaking of separation. Separation. Horror, separation, darkness. There's no longer any sea there. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. We enter a new city. No more widows, no more orphans. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This living parable in Luke chapter seven points ahead to the final consummation of God's kingdom that we see here. 
the beautiful ministry of Jesus that he offers us. Again, asking questions as we go into a time of response, living in a desperate time right now, a place of destitution and despair, hopelessness, just walking through life, going along with the crowd, a crowd that is going the same way. Is that your life? Can I offer you Jesus? The ministry that we see here and the ministry that we look to final fulfillment at in this text is ours today. It goes on today. So as we go into that time of response, I ask you again, I ask you again, what crowd, what son, what sufferer, where are you in this text? Jesus is offering himself to you. He wants to enter your life. He came to enter, to visit his people. Let me pray. And Jesus, we thank you that you did. And Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus out of love for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you came willingly, willingly, as a man, an obedient man, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We thank you for that. We thank you for taking our place. We thank you for stepping into our desperate state. And Holy Spirit, I would pray that people would see here even now, even if their life seemingly is good on the outside, if they they don't know you, they are living in desperation and they need you, Jesus. So I pray that in this time of response, that those that don't know you would come to you, receive you, say yes to you, that you would raise them out of the grave as it were, that they would walk in newness of life, going from old to new, from dead to alive, and receiving the abundant life, the eternal life, not just simply living forever, but living eternally with you. We look forward to that. We want to enter the city. We want to go in with you, Jesus, into the city where there is no more crying or weeping or mourning or death. We long for that, and that can begin now. And I pray, Father, for those that do know you, but perhaps kind of getting tied up with crowds that are going the opposite way, I pray that they would come back to you today, understanding when they do that you see them and look upon them with compassion, compassion, as you see each of us. So I pray that in this time of response, you would be pleased and great ministry would take place, that great ministry would take place to the glory of your name and our great joy and strength. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.